Okay, welcome to the first of our live streams. Um, it's excellent to see so many viewers on already. Uh, we've been putting out a couple of emails and, and social media to get as many people onto this. So this new series, uh, welcome to live streaming. We're gonna interview emergency response teams and folk all around the world from different sort of walks of life, different types of emergency response to hear how they do things, whether it's in a public safety setting, whether it's in a corporate environment and it's a crisis they're dealing with, whether it's an industrial or manufacturing site. So this emergency response exists in all sorts of different things. These streams are going out live on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, and you can watch live uh, from any of those platforms. And we'll also put this out as a, as a recording afterwards, and it'll be uh, the audio put out on our podcast series, which you can get on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or Spotify. If you are watching live, please say hello in the comments, no matter um, which of the platforms you're on. Uh, we are able to see comments coming in from no matter if it's Facebook or, or, or YouTube, et cetera. So do say hello. And we are seeking comments and questions. So if you've got a question uh, on today's show, do send it in. This week, I'm, I'm joined um, and delighted to have on board Mark from Ronan Rescue, who's going to do the first episode. It's, it's all new to us. Um, and Mark is well experienced in this. So he runs a very successful uh, podcast called the Ronan Rescue Cast, uh, which uh, I'll put up the uh, URL here if you want to get Mark's SoundCloud. So uh, Mark runs this. Um, and uh, we're going to talk today all about the world of rescue standby, confined space, rope access, and where the industry is going. In two weeks' time, uh, I'll be delighted to introduce you to the Rhode Island Bomb Squad, who are going to come on as well and talk about their equipment, their training, and what happens in a bomb squad versus what you hear today. So that should be good. So let's. I'm going to bring Mark in here to the chat. Mark, hello, welcome. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, clear, good. Excellent. Uh, thanks. Thanks for joining, Mark. Uh, you're over. You're in BC, British Columbia, at the moment. Yeah, British Columbia, Canada, right now. Excellent. So, Mark is the CEO and president of Ronan Safety and Rescue, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Mark's also very involved in search and rescue in British Columbia. Before that, was armed forces, a structural firefighter, captain of the heavy rescue in City of Delta, uh, down near Vancouver. So, what a great first guest to have. I'm honored. I appreciate this. We're breaking new technology ground again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I met Mark many, many years ago, um, I think in Vancouver at the time. Um, and um, we've had a, a great fun staying in touch throughout. Um, he's very good to in invite me on his podcast before. And so it's nice to be able to do this back. So Mark, tell me a little bit about, or everyone, a little bit about uh, Ronan Rescue. What do you do? Um, what is standby rescue? I mean, as a first place, I mean, it say that to anybody and they've no clue what that means. So you kind of did two questions there. So I'll hit the first one kind of first. Sure. What's Ronan rescue? What do we do? Um, generally we try to remove risk from clients and mm -hmm. we do that through training. We do that through rescue standby. We do that through rope access services. Um, a lot of the stuff that a client finds too onerous to do on their own or needs training to do on their own or yeah. to, to do on their own. So that's where we've kind of found a niche in the market for that, whether that be training even emergency response teams, we train police, fire, military, and different rope techniques, different rescue techniques, 
through yeah. the whole gamut of confined space, trench, um, rope, obviously, so that either they can take on that task themselves or they don't have to, which leads into the whole rescue standby question. And that's around um, the most developed countries have OHS regulations that require first aid and evacuation regulations for workers. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them use the term rescue, some of them use first aid and evacuation, where if someone's entering, for instance, a confined space, uh, they have to have somebody there able to rescue that person. So a lot of the times we'll either be brought in to provide the training for that. So we train their teams to do it. That'd be industrial teams, could be fire teams. But rescue standby specifically for us means we're going out to a site and providing that service for that client on the site because they either do not have that uh, capacity or the space or the site is too dangerous that they don't want to expose their workers to it. Gotcha. So what, what's a common day for a rescue standby team? What happens? Um, Nothing? Or, yeah, or are there yeah, other that's, jobs that's going on? Goal. Is that a good day? Um, I, I won't say who I was working for in the past because this isn't, you know, they're a great company, what have you. Um, first one I walked on to before I started my own company back, I'm talking, I started in 2003. So we're talking a little while ago now. We walk on and we're on site for maybe five minutes and the, the alarm goes off. And an individual has removed the uh, scaffold guard barriers on a scaffolding inside of a sewage digester and has walked off the edge of the scaffold, fallen 35 feet into the bottom of the sewage digester. And I was jacked. I mean, I was a young firefighter at the time. Um, I'd been on four or five years. Boom, this is great, right? Like, this is what I signed up for. You know, we wrap into this space, package this guy, ropes come down, up he goes. We had the patient out of the hole before fire or ambulance even showed up. And as we stopped to high five each other, I kind of look at me via the view of my partner because my partner's covered head to toe in human feces. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, I'm probably covered head to toe in human feces at this point as well. And uh, because we're both doing the same job down here. And at that point in time, I kind of thought going on scene with trained staff to prevent rescues from happening might mm -hmm. be a better viewpoint than just the straight response element of this. <laughs> and so that's kind of why we formed Ronin at the time and the direction we sort of went. Um, I mean, to give you an example, our rescue team member, they have to have, you know, not only their rope and confined space to NFPA, they have to have industry courses like fall protection and confined space and WEMIS and lockout and they have to be able to deliver tailboards and run gas monitors and do all of those things that also come in with safety and then when you step up to a team lead not only do you have to go through some leadership training you also have to do construction safety officer training like trade safety coordinator and construction safety officer and to be a rescue specialist in our company not only do you need the rescue you know end of it which is some advanced rescue training and you know, the physics and the math and all that. So you can deliver it, but you also need at least a 40 hour on top of a construction safety officer, some sort of OHS HSE program, because we want people to go on sites to be able to talk intelligently to clients and say, Hey, you can take the guardrails off the scaffolding. Here's, you know, emphatically why I don't think that's a good idea based on my experience as a rescuer based on my knowledge as an OHS person or an HSE person, depending on where you're listening. Um, 
so that we can try to prevent those accidents from occurring beforehand. And we've had many successes with that over the years, things like flow meters inside of live sewer pits, um, you know, fall protection instances where we've, you know, had people tie back in or change their tie-ins. And I just think instead of showing up to a site, kicking back, feet up, waiting for something to go wrong, I mean, it's more value to the client, obviously, that we're doing something, but it's also safer for the people that we're supposed to be helping. At the end of the day, we want people to go home safe to their families. Going home with two broken legs because you walked off of a, you know, scaffolding. Yeah, you're going home, but that's not the same as just walking home at the end of the day and going, hey, you know what? I had a bit of a head shake experience today and I think I'm going to learn from it. And so, so they're actively involved in the safety on the site, not just waiting for a, a rescue to happen. Yeah, and that's for people out there that want to start rescue standby or for people out there that are employing rescue standby teams. Look at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can certainly hire professional responders on their days off and they're good people. They're, there mm-hmm. is no, I shouldn't say there's no bad people. Our competition <laughs> here, they're good people. They are mm-hmm. excellent responders not a iota i'd say it any other way um the difference comes when you start getting into that minutia is you know how good are they and what about that prevention piece because that's huge i mean when you think about when we talk about you know uh, mitigating risk for a client having work show up in our organization or our area and do an investigation and get shut down for a day i mean that site we were on Wastewater treatment plant owned by a government entity. Obviously, investigations. They've got emergency services on their site. And there's that old kind of saying where if you open the door, expect people to walk through it. Well, now the fire department's there and they're, they're, they're doing one of these. Oh, hey, I wonder if that's up to code. You know, the ambulance service is showing up. WorkSafe's showing up. And of course, WorkSafe's only looking at the incident, right? No, they're looking at everything when they walk through your door. So to help mitigate that risk to that client, You want to make sure from nuts to bolts. Like if none of those people showed up because you stopped an incident from occurring, everybody's going home. The risk to that client also gets mitigated a bit more because Mm -hmm. no one's arriving to start looking at their stuff. Sure. And, and so, so I think we have a dog in the background on my end. Um, (laughs) I don't sound that large. (laughs) It's a large dog. So, um, from a from a, that point of view, what are the threats that would typically be seen there? So, I mean, fall from height is an obvious one. Okay, what what is confined space to people? I mean, what is confined space? What is the threat? What is the what does the rescue look like? Um, let me start with the first part of the question because they are kind of two separate. What's the the risk? There's a multitude. I mean, we've been doing this for 17 years. I didn't have gray hair when I started, um, <laughs> and it's one of those things where we had somebody break into a site while we were on it, climb up a tower crane and commit suicide. And people go, what's that have to do with rescue standby? Well, we are, most of our staff, our professional first responders working on the side on their days off. We have full-time staff as well. But when the OFA attendant, the occupational first aid, sorry, I'm speaking an acronym, shows up and vomits, because this is kind of one of the first medical calls that they've ever seen in their life. Our people can move in remove them from that situation, chat with them. They have CIS debriefing mm-hmm. training and deal with the emergency services that are coming to site. Nothing to do with the reason we were on that particular site. We were there for a confined space rescue standby. Yeah. We were, I think, five stories underground on that site. But it's one of those things where 
just weird stuff happens where you have professional emergency responders on site, whether the, the generator breaks and all of a sudden all your power goes out or someone breaks in to kill themselves or you have an actual response. So confined space, general definition around most of the developed world, enclosed and partially enclosed space, large enough that you can get in to do work. Some of them have atmospheric levels in there, whether, you know, could develop a bad atmosphere. Um, generally, though, it's configured in such a way that it inhibits emergency response. You know, um, you've got to go in on technical equipment. You've got to repel in. You've got long ladders with vertical areas where you'd have to raise someone out, either, you know, either using an SRL or whether you're deciding to sorry someone's emailing me going your iphone's beeping on the uh live chat sorry um whether that's rope systems whether that's srl but generally there's some technical rescue and i kind of you know air quote that that's required to get the person out where if you could just walk in and it's a you know a regular door that you know somebody could walk in you open it up you roll the person into a basket stretcher you pick them up you walk them out that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about spaces on sites where it's technically difficult to get to. And these could be things where you're at a port, where it's a silo inside of a ship. I mean, we've done rescues inside of ships that have taken like an hour, where people are buried way down in the bottom of holds. These can be sewage places. You I was going to say, what, is it buried in the cargo? Buried in, in or, or just injured? At injured on a lower deck what are you yeah well this is what's so funny i mean not funny i mean it's so unique about confined space and rescue standby is we might show up because they're welding in a bracket you know bracket mm -hmm. broke through in the bottom of the, one of the cargo holds and all of a sudden there's a migrant in some forward hold in between the inner and outer uh, uh walls of the ship like, these things happen when you're on site because of course you might be their first point of land Mm -hmm. And there might be CBSA for us. Um, I keep speaking in acronyms. Um, um, Customs and Border Service agents on the mm -hmm. ship as well, doing their thing while you're doing yours because time is money. Like they want these things in and out, right? Like we got 15 containers to take off. Oh, great. You idiot. You broke a, a weld on something. Get this fixed so we can get out to sea. Um, and so there's multiple things going on the ship at once. And this is where all of a sudden, you know, worlds collide and the laws of unintended consequences show up where, hey, you're already there. So, yeah, we generally show up because we're hired by a client to do or perform rescue or safety or risk mitigate for a specific task. Hey, we're going in to fix this. We're going in to weld this. We're going in to replace this. It's those weird laws. And I mean, that's easy to usually mitigate. We can help with be part of the tailboards and chats we can talk with the safety people we can suggest ways of doing things um, and we're not sitting there trying to tell you how you do your job i hate those people with the clipboard they go hey you're doing it wrong it says here right in aisle five that you're no we're not that way right we understand that safe work there's two key words to that one of which is work yeah. um, so we're there to assist in the safe efficient efficient being quick and safe sort of um mitigation of that work as well and that's primarily, but I would say probably once every six months, you get this, this weird thing occurring. We've been on sites where we've been teaching clients rescue to have their rescue alarms go off to perform rescue while we're there. Yeah. Um, 
You know, so these just law of unintended consequences. You spend enough time on sites and you just start seeing weird things. Cars driving into the side of buildings while you're doing something completely unrelated on the inside. What what um what kind of difference do you see from your background in public safety where let's call it it's not your incident? Uh as when you move over to private the private world and it is their incident. So um you know what what differences do you see in the nature of the response with that? It's an interesting question. And I, I'm gonna go down two different streams. And I'm gonna start with the positive fuzzy stream where you're right, it is the incident of the client on which you're employed. So you definitely have some ownership around mm -hmm. that. Um you also do not have the unlimited resources you have with the fire service, for instance. And uh, you know, we we got a helicopter, you know, got radio via um, uh, traffic or traffic control, got a hold of a helicopter. I've been taking photos of an incident we were at once. You know, we just absconded somebody's helicopter, basically. Hey, Gus, congratulations. You're now taking photos of this incident because it's very large. To do that in the private sector, someone's going to want money for that. And unlike the public sector, it's not that we have an unlimited amount of money, but in the public sector, they want the incident mitigated. And it's usually to the betterment of the community so there is kind of more of an unlimited pot and this is where now you kind of go i said the positive a little bit more on the, the negative side with it is at some point on the private side you end up with this uncomfortable conversation of profit and money versus risk mitigation and life and when i started this i said it and i'll still say it to this day there's a lot of work we do as a private rescue organization that I truly feel belongs in the public realm. And I, I fully understand that that's taking bread off of my table as a private rescue provider, but I never wanna be put into the situation. Well, let's go back to the one where the person broke in, jumped, killed themselves. Our people were leaving site. They did mm -hmm. not have to stay. I obviously have to pay them overtime to be there. Yep. Is the client going to authorize that? The, my client's already gone home for the day. I've got the skeleton night crew staff on at this point. Mm -hmm. Now I have to do what's best for the people involved. That yeah. may not be what's best for the bottom line. The client may turn around the next day and go, you guys should have stepped over the body and kept going. I pay people for that. You know, yeah. that's all real world situation now that you don't have to deal with on the private sector, but you have to deal with on the public sector. And that's where my apologies i can't i'm trying to hide this phone right now <laughs> um well, that's part of this thing on the public sector that becomes very difficult because i mean you have morals you have conscience yeah. you have people that you care for that are working for you you make relationships with clients and the mindset is i mean i came from the military i got into the military for five minutes when i was 18 i got into the fire service at about 22 and my whole life's been public service. I've never had mm -hmm. until I started a business 17 years ago that that money as an issue per se. In the army, yeah. you need to blow something up, you blow it up. You're in the fire service, yeah. you need to, I need your boat. Congratulations. I own a boat, right? Like <laughs> the, the private sector doesn't work that way though. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants money for these things. And so budgeting became a huge issue. And there almost needs to be a course for budgeting for emergency response in the private sector because mm. it's a different ball game. And like I said, I never want to get to the situation where I have to balance morality or life over profit. Yeah. And there's people out there that do that and it's disgusting. And you really, 
if you're hiring a private rescue provider, take a hundred pound haul bag, go down to your local REI, MEC, what's it over in the mm -hmm. UK or over in Ireland, your outdoor store, yep. grab, grab a 70 liter haul bag, fill it full of sandbags and drop it into your confined space or hang it on fall protection off of your tower jib or crane or mast or whatever you want mm -hmm. and tell your rescue standby team to go get it. Yeah. And if they come back, if they get it, boom, no problem. If they can't because of competence issues, that's one thing. If they show back up to you and start asking for more money, that's another thing. Yeah. And that's where I think industry out there that hires private rescue providers don't have that knowledge. They didn't show up ready to do the job. If they're saying, oh, wow, I need a flux capacitor now. That's going to be a hundred mm. grand. Uh, I'm just going to add that to my bill. I mean, it's yeah. reasonable to say, hey, your space is full of ethyl methyl death and I'm going to ruin some kit to do this. Do you mind? Mm -hmm. Sure, it's on scene, understandable. But to say, hey, I need to go and buy a flux capacitor to do this. They either didn't pre-plan this correctly yeah. or they're trying to take you for a ride to buy something they don't necessarily need. Yeah, gotcha. And so of, of everyone um, I know involved in West rescue, you're fairly well traveled, whether it's right across North America um, but I've seen you over in Europe a number of times for Grimp Day. Could you tell everyone a little bit about what that competition is and why it's special? So Grimp Days, uh, Chow in Taiwan, there's Grimp Day Asia, Grimp Day Namur is the original, there's Grimp North America, they're looking at Peru one now coming up. Yeah, I think I've either competed, been staff, or controlled 13 different Grimp Days now. And I love them. Um, rescue, whether it's public or private, is a fairly uh, low frequency, high risk event. To coin a term that everybody that's gone through the fire service will have seen that video. Uh, Gordon, I can't remember his last name, but yeah, it's a high, low frequency, high risk event. What Grimp Day does is it is a usually two to three day competition where you're running anywhere from four to six rescue events a, a day, live patient full-on events. I mean, you're talking events where it's like, you know, two ropes hanging off a 70 meter bridge, ascend mm -hmm. the ropes, get you and your entire team and the patient to the top. Um, there's confined space, Grimp North America. We gave teams 90 minutes to complete it. There was teams, I think four teams didn't complete it in the 90 minutes. Um, one of the industrial teams, not really a surprise considering their background did the best. Yeah. And the uh, other teams are right around the 90 minute, like 85, 89 minutes. So what it does is it tests teams and they're five person teams, a team leader, and then, uh, you know, a crew of four mm -hmm. to real world standards. And what I love about Grimp Day is, wow, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent. The technology in rope rescue has evolved tenfold. In 90, when I got in the army, you'd rappel out of helicopters with a oval steel locking carabiner and two things, a hauser laid rope, and out you go. Well, you have a good mm -hmm. time. I joined the fire service. We were on rescue eights and munters. We all learn now that munters won't even hold a two-person load, but hey, <laughs> it was the early 90s, you know, whatever, right? Um, so then we went to, you know, uh, rescue eights and 540s and then brake racks and 540s and then IDs and then radium release hitches and then all of a sudden it just spiked you know we hit MPDs and maestros and clutches and IDs and seriouses yeah. and, you know it just it's just like sky's the limit at this point and I think a lot of teams get confused I think they keep bringing in stuff and 
It's like we didn't even learn how to finish the training on the last device we had. And all yeah. of a sudden, there's a new flux capacitor on the market I need to buy. And what Grimp does is it busts it back down to the basics. And it busts it down to the basics because generally, most Grimps, you have somewhere between 6 to 15 minutes to access the patient. And you have between 60 to 90 minutes to finish the scenario. And you're talking at times like high-line scenarios. Run a high-line scenario in 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden... All the stuff that's whiz-bang technology that, you know, looked good in the catalog may not look so good anymore. Mm -hmm. It starts to, you bust in the back down to basics. Simple, fast, clean rigging, quick patient access. I'm preaching to the choir for people that are probably listening to this um, because that's what this is about, is saving patients. It's getting there safely, quickly, and getting mm -hmm. the patient out to further medical care. Um, there was a, on on the day, what what happens is a there's a, a number of challenges set up and the teams rotate around yeah, the challenges so, and have to solve them. Yeah, so we'll go with uh, Grimp No More. It was the original. It's kind of the gold standard to be held to. To the folks that hold it, if they're listening to this, they're in Europe. All kudos to you, you guys. Do an outstanding job. Um, it's been pushed back a little bit right now. They won't be releasing any information until the 20th because of obviously this worldwide pandemic we all seem mm -hmm. to find ourselves in. But yeah, so you show up on day one and basically it's like a bloodletting. Um, every team does a scenario to see whether or not your team is actually competent to carry on to day two and three. And I mean, there was one year, I think they rescued five teams out of the day one scenario. So you got 35 okay. teams, you're down to like 30, 31 right away because four or five teams couldn't even finish, you know, the the test to see if you're good enough to go to the next days. Okay. And then the next two days, Grimp uh, Namur is uh, five scenarios a day. And the thing I really like about Namur is it's the first place I saw it being from North America. I'm used to a very regimented system. They don't really care if you want to take a half an hour for lunch or whether you want to drive down the street and go to the pub. Course closes at seven o'clock. Get your five scenarios done, understanding that there's going to be cues at certain scenarios and, you know, there may be time to get there. You know, you might have to hike a couple kilometers to get to a scenario. You may have to get your team into a car and drive to a scenario. Um, so, but yeah, they're very laissez-faire. If you want to take an hour for lunch and a couple of coffee breaks, you may not make all five scenarios in a day. And year one that we were there, the first year we competed was 2013. We finished our first scenario with typical North American fire service, high fives all around. Let's debrief this. Let's chat it down. Let's sit down, have some water. 30 minutes later, we get up. There's teams that have finished three events by this point. <laughs> we're looking at our watch going, it's 10.15. We have another four scenarios to run. We've got to be off course by six. All of a sudden, that urgency picks up. So with all of that, that's why I like Grimp Day. It imposes both internal and external stresses on you. You have peers watching you compete. Mm -hmm. It's about as real as it gets live patient. I mean, besides hurting the patient, it's about as real as it gets besides doing it for real. Do, do you see big differences in the how teams approach it, whether they're different industry backgrounds, as in if they're military versus firefighter background versus mountain rescue and then how does that change by continent i mean you must see differences in european rescue styles versus north american it's it's a great question um when we showed up the first year we were the only team with mpds okay 
we were also using hull prussics because that's how we were taught. We were tightening high lines, the old W method for people out there that are familiar with it. And so while people are taking photos of the MPDs, they're looking at us, asking us kind of if we're dumb about doing the other stuff, right? And we're like, hmm. Second year, London Fire Brigade shows up with MPDs. We've thrown the prussics away. We're going back to mechanical rope grabs. We're not W uh, um, pulling things. And during the course of that year, we did some testing to figure it out. We talked to some smart people over here. And by the third year, a lot more teams are using MPDs. No one's using Prusik, right? And so you evolve with the event mm -hmm. and you evolve to a point. And I would suggest that 90, maybe 80 to 90% of the teams are running the same, if not similar gear. You want to see what the best gear in the world is right now? Go to a Grimp Day mm -hmm. because sure. a lot of these people are sponsored. A lot of them have money to buy stuff. And what they're picking up is right now what is primo on the market. Yeah. And it works because... If everybody's using the exact same control descent device or the exact same pulley, it says mm -hmm. something, doesn't it? But um, where it starts to split out, that last 15%, let's call it, I say 5% is team technique because yeah. there are some technique differences. And 10% and maybe more. I mean, it might be 80% and 5% and 15%. That last 10 15% is leadership. Mm -hmm. The teams, and this is where, when you talk about police, military, fire teams, this yeah. is where you start to see your differences because um, Axel Mance, he's come in third for four years and he's changed his team almost entirely. That's leadership. Mm -hmm. That's training and leadership. Yeah. Um, and I mean, kudos to him. The military, it's um, you talk and we've picked up stuff from the belgian military how they break down their team they run a team lead team lead and then they have their binomes uh teams of two two riggers two rescuers they have a team lead on each one and it's that leadership component it's how they structure their team it's how they run their team it's how they communicate within that team that mm -hmm. makes the difference between first and 22nd because like i said the equipment 20 like 80 percent of the equipment's the same you know 5% technique difference and like 15 to 20%, you know, leadership. And you look at leaders like Trulls from Oslo Fire, um, Xavier from Namur. Um, and I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but, you know, those are ones that jump to my mind. Some of the teams that have won it over the years, KRTs, the Berlins, you watch their team leaders and yeah. they're phenomenal. They really are phenomenal. And we've seen it with our own team. We've seen the team rankings change based on the dynamics of the team and the team leader mm -hmm. excellent um i'd love to get to that one day it sounds like even just watching it sounds like great spectator sport of um to, to watch and see how everyone approaches the challenges the uh, i love a good to, to cut in on that the best thing about yeah. is the, the last night the team that comes in 34th gets the same amount of cheers as the team that comes in first it's that atmosphere and yes it's a competition there's a lot of type a personalities out there Don't yeah, get me wrong. yeah there's a lot of words on the course words are said um but at the end it's there for people to meet people mm -hmm. look at new techniques and equipment learn and share and that's 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 the big part of it i i love any i love watching clever challenges being put together to people that are you know you have to really think about the solution 
um, and watch your team go at them. What what um to to wrap this up, I'd love to talk about the future of rescue. So, um, you know, we can see all sorts of technologies coming in from left and right of whether they're drones or ROVs or you know all the, all these automated things. Is there anything else simpler to this that other than maybe incidents not happening, but what's going to change the industry dramatically i mean what what what's going to kill your job if you don't change and um, what's changing what are the trends where is it leading in the world and um, what does this look like in 50 years time it's a good question um i think users at places like grimpdan you know heavy use users mm -hmm. talk like the fdny they're pushing manufacturers to build better widgets. Mm -hmm. I think the standards organizations are going to have to tweak and respond quicker. Places like NFPA and Cordes Institute, EN standards, mm -hmm. they may have to change the revision cycles in order to meet the equipment that's coming on the market so that it can be usable. And I'll get to the 50 years in a sec. Lighter, yeah. faster. The next 10 years, I think that's where it's going to be the stronger materials that are being released. You know, we have G-rated 11 mil ropes now, um, eight mil ropes, five mil cordage, you know, can't really call them ropes of that size, that are 22 kilonewton strength, 5,000 pounds for the American viewer. These devices or these cords and ropes are gonna end up needing devices that work well and slip with those. Mm -hmm. And what that'll do is it'll take your 11 person team and knock into a five-person team at like a grimp day that's you know kind of the standard now and move mm -hmm. it lower where you have devices doing multiple things to remove people from that and that's where you bring up you talk about rovs and drones and whatnot you know we talk to clients about rigging we talk you know when would you use a tripod reeve well you'd use a tripod reeve in a confined space if there's ethyl methyl death coming out of the space so you don't have to expose too many people to ethyl methyl death and that's a big thing is trying to keep those people safe. So anytime someone goes into harm's way to do a rescue, there is that potential. So the less people that are there, the less potential. And so that's where you talk about lighter uh, equipment, more versatile equipment that does more stuff to lower your team mm -hmm. size. To push it forward 50 years, you think, you know, are there going to be automated firefighters and rope rescuers going out there and doing this? I don't think... The technology exists i think they're going to look at it from the other side where they go how do we mitigate the rescue from occurring not how do we mitigate the number of rescuers or mitigate yeah. the rescuer going in and i mean there's been great advancements and things like ai and you know we got automated cars and things like this but tesla cars still crash and the problem with it is is you can only screw up a rescue once mm -hmm. you still need that live person to make that decision. And sometimes the decisions are based on morals. Sometimes the decisions are based on logic. Sometimes the decisions aren't based on common sense. Yeah, And that's where I think AI will have a problem. I could spock out any rescue. Oh, the chances of Billy being alive in there under three minutes are now at, uh, you know, 15.2%. The chances of these people dying on the way in are 17.8%. Billy dies, uh, you know, and that's so easy to do. That, that's a math equation. But Billy has a family. Billy's, you know, alive right now. We swore an oath to try to help him, you know. So there's these 
other factors that come into play that, you know, once that math equation changes mm. percentage, Billy's still a viable rescue. And that's where I think AI and, you know, automation will have a problem. And even if you have, you know, you've got bombs God coming on next week, obviously they've got their remote devices. They send them out there in case things go boom, they blow up a device and not a human. Mm. They're making good advancements in that. And I could see robotics coming into rescue, but you look at something like a confined space in a ship and we're going to mm -hmm. go down a ladder. And then the next one has no ladder. You know, we've got a 10 foot hole. We move over 20 feet. Now we got just a 40 foot run. Then you yeah. get to the bottom of that. And then you got portholes. It's tough to find a robotic that can climb a ladder and then somehow hover or rappel down 40 mm -hmm. feet and then get over three foot portholes, even just to give you essay on what's going on. I mean, maybe putting a drone down there, but now you've got RF and Bluetooth issues that mm -hmm. haven't been solved because of the nature of the confined spaces, concrete, uh, steel. Yeah. So I'd like to see it move that way. There's certainly advancements that can help me do my job. Right now, I just don't think the industry's there. And hopefully in 20 years, they've solved some of those connectivity issues, some of those mobility issues. Mm -hmm. The decision-making, I think, in things like rescue will always come down to a human because I don't think there's an algorithm that you can make like where, Can't like I said, where, <laughs> yeah, where do you, yeah. where do you make that metric line? You know, mm. where is Billy so unviable and the rescue so potentially dangerous that the metrics at such a discrepancy that you decide that that's where you're going to program that computer. Yeah. Well, it, right. it, it comes back like your example with the Tesla is the famous sort of issue of, do you program in to do age detection of you can hit the old lady or the young child? You've got to hit one of them because both are taking up a lane in front of you. Should the car decide to hit one or the other based on an ethical decision, if it has to hit one? Um, it's all of these pieces, right? It's, so it sounds to me like you're, you're predicting having more intel, having more assisting tools to assist you, but, but humans doing the rescue. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly think there's a place for uh, advancements in technologies to go in. I mean, right now in large confined space rescues, you put a human or two usually with a rig pack and a med pack on air with monitors and they're human guinea pigs. In reality, they're the mm. canary in the mine. Yeah. If the monitor starts to go off, they take a look They're on air. And if it says LEL problem, they start running because that's the one thing that we have a very difficult time controlling i mean the supplied air respirator the scbas they'll just, just give the lel acronym level oh sorry uh, lower explosive limit that's one of those ones where if you know you clip the carabiner off the side of something metal and make the spark the boom right scba okay. doesn't work so well in that environment <laughs> and that's wrapped in a I plastic suit <laughs> yeah the technology advances if i can send something into that hole that mm. will tell me the atmosphere. Now we're talking, I mean, what are we going to do? Send a mass spectrometer in there. But, you know, even a, a drone with a four gas, do I have LEL issues? What are my gas issues, my atmospheric issues in there? Because if I can send them in, you know, bare ass, as opposed to covered in protective equipment, they're faster. Mm. If they're faster, it's better for the patient. So it's being able to deploy that technology in front of the team as the team's getting ready timely enough to give me 
essay that I can make decisions or situational awareness, sorry, yeah. that I can make decisions <laughs> on yeah. in real time so that I can now either slow down or speed up that rescue. Yeah. Excellent. That's fascinating. Uh, really enjoyed that, that chat, Mark. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. I really appreciate being the first person on here. And I took up, I think, like 43 minutes of your time. Sorry no, about that. Del no, delighted. Um, it's been really good, really interesting. Um, there's lots of people saying hello on YouTube in the comments and um, watching from all over the world. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, thank you again to Mark. And we'll, we'll be back in about two weeks' time. All right. Thank you very much, Robin. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks again.